to answer your question, I'm not going again. I'm, I'm just making an announcement. So. <laughs> yeah, I heard you, Leslie. You're like, oh, yeah, that doctor's appointment. Um, okay, so I'm just, Robin asked me to make an announcement about our Eastside Academy uh, offering that we gathered. They said at the auction, they, they um, kind of presented us as the women of the well raised a thousand dollars and then they matched another thousand dollars. And so Nan said, well, kind of, you know, her husband could match with Microsoft match the cash that was given and blah, blah, blah. So we came out to almost $2,000 in our donations. So yay, yay. And then they used that as kind of a, one of the um, fund need offering categories, saying, would you like to match the women at the well and also give a thousand? I know, so it was lovely. So we made bazillions, lady. And, um, and uh, they said also that Eastside Academy, they met their auction fundraising goal. That's what her little letter says, of 550K, right? Yes, so, so hooray! And uh, then the last thing I was going to say was, uh, oh, uh, that's another thing I'm going to say. So the penultimate thing I was going to say is that um, we've had a lot of new kids this year. Raise your hand if your table had a new student this year. Yeah, we had a lot, oh! Anyways, um, I just want to report that from up here, you ladies are doing a great job because I look out and even the new kids are smiling. So that's a great sign. And uh, one of the new kids said to Cheryl, he said, um, it's like having a lot of grandparents, but they actually like me. <laughs> so good job there too. And if you have actual grandkids you don't like, be nicer to them, remembering that comment. And then the, the last thing was that uh, the date on the orange handout, these questions are for next week, even though it has today on it, because it's for next week. We're going to start out by singing. All to Jesus I surrender all to him. And we would all have dinner together. 
Well, one of them was heading off to Princeton Seminary in the fall, and he was sitting in the corner reading his Bible one night, and all of a sudden he screamed, Samuel must have been out of his mind! <laughs> so how many of you thought that? When you first, several of you. So, so my challenge from the Lord in this chapter was to find his mercy and grace, which was, which was interesting because I had got to sit with this chapter for four weeks. Uh, we tease at our table with the newcomers that when Christina teaches, it's all about sin, and when I teach, it's all about suffering. Well, this week I got sin and suffering. So, so I guess that leaves Christina clear for the next time she teaches. But when we look at this chapter, we have to hold the characters and look at them and see how God is showing them his mercy and grace. First of all, we have to hold the tension that Samuel feels because of his love for Saul, his love for the Lord, his love for his people. And then we have to hold Saul, Saul and his pride and arrogance and, and thinking that he's doing God's will and not doing God's will. And then we have to hold the Amalekites, these people that God says that Saul is to wipe out. And then we have to hold the Kenites. Who are these people? And all this tension, and in all of this tension, there's this judgment. And so whenever there's judgment, you also have to hold Jesus Christ because he was the one who ultimately took all of the judgment for sin. So as we go on, we're going to learn all about this tension. And what we have in this chapter is a word called harim, H-E-R-I-M, but it's he harim, which means utterly destroy. Harim means destroy, but this is utterly destroy. And this word is mentioned seven times in this chapter. Verse 3, 8, twice in 9, 15, 18, and 20. Seven times. If you know your Hebrew numerology, you know that seven, like the seven days of creation, is the number of completion. So here God is saying, I am going to completely do something here, and I want you to do it for me, Saul. So what we also have in this chapter, as I mentioned, is we have a crossroads of mercy and grace. It's the subtext here. The Amalekites have had 500 years of grace. They have had a backstory of hating God, denying God, and jealousy of God. They, they are from Esau's line. So as you look up here, we have Abraham, he had Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. From Jacob came the Israelites. From Esau, first he had a, a grandson named Amalek, and then he was the father of the Amalekites. These people are related. Whoops, wrong one, wrong way. So they are related. Okay. So the backstory here happens in Exodus. Moses takes the people out of Israel, and as they are going along, they are whining and complaining, and now they're 
thirsty. And they go to Moses and say, did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us of thirst? Our children are thirsty, our cattle are thirsty. And so they just want to go back to Egypt. So Moses goes to the Lord and he says, these people want to kill me. What are you going to do about them? And, and the Lord says, Moses, go strike the rock. So he goes and he strikes the rock. Water comes out and everybody has water. And Moses names it quarreling testing place. <laughs> right then, along come the Amalekites, who should have greeted them and said, what? we know where the water is, we can help you. But no, the Amalekites sneak up and they have this huge battle. Well, the Lord helps them win, but the Lord is mad because he loves hospitality. He honors hospitality. And these people are not hospitable. They are habitually wicked people. And so he says to Moses, he says, write this as, uh, okay, where am I? Lost my notes. Anyway, then he says to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now Moses builds a new one, a new altar, and it says, the Lord is my banner. Better than quarreling testing place, right? It says, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, let's go ahead and look at our scripture for today, 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am one the Lord has sent was sent to anoint your king over his people Israel. So, listen now to the message from the Lord. When you have a sentence and something is repeated twice, you pay attention. This is from the Lord. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out from Egypt. The Lord Almighty is a name change here. It is, can also be translated and is translated Lord of hosts or God of angel armies. So now this is for emphasis for Saul to, Saul, I want you to sit up and take notice. This message is from the God of angel armies, your superior commander. And if you don't obey this, it's treason. This is what I want you to do. Now, go attack the Amalekites and he, Harim, totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. This is where my friend said, Samuel was out of his mind. Maybe some of you have thought that. So I, when I've been trying to tell this chapter to my family when on walks and things, they all go, we just don't. That is, I mean, why would God do that? It's, it's hard to understand, but we're going to try to understand it. In other words, God is saying to Saul, you are not to profit from this because you're acting for me. The Amalekites had their chance to repent 500 years. They didn't, and now it's over. So now we have to look at the army. Verse 4, so Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Remember when Christina taught and Saul's army was, they ran and hid? 
This is 25 years later, and Saul has proved himself as a leader of men. And so he has this large army. And so Saul himself has had 23 years of grace. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away. Leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. All right, let's look at who are the Kenites. They are also related by Abraham. They came from one of Abraham's later wives down here. Same thing, related. So Moses when he fled Egypt the first time, his wife was a Kenite. And then he went back to Israel. He led them out of Israel. And when they came out, unlike the Amalekites who attacked them, the Kenites welcomed them. And it was her father, his wife's, his father-in-law, who gave him wonderful advice on how to deal with all of the problems that he had with this new nation. So the Kenites are the, the type of Christ that we want to be, welcoming, hospitable, and, and gracious to strangers. That's what they were. So God gives them their um, time to get away from there. So they do. So they go away. The, the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. So I love the fact that the author of 1 Samuel puts this grace in there as an object lesson. You might have just skipped over that sentence, but it's huge because they're the same generational time as the Amalekites. And what could have been for the Amalekites of, of grace and acceptance and God's favor is going to be judgment. Verse eight. Oops, sorry. Got away again. Verse 7. Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur. You see how this is a huge area. Here's the Amalekites down here, and then these all the way to Egypt. This huge battle. Now we're on to verse 8. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. All right, let's get into the mind of the soldiers. Why would they want to spare the cattle? Because this is what that represented. This is a flock of Maseratis. Ultimate wealth, right? And that's what it was for these soldiers. Wealth. In every culture in those days, to the victor belonged the spoils. You could go, you took over people, you got, you got the best of everything. But not this time, because God doesn't want anyone to benefit when he judges. And so this was not good. But these men were saying, there's no way I'm destroying that. I'm going to take that home to the wife, and, and I, it's going to help me worship the 
Lord. Because God just loves to give me wonderful things like this. But no, no, no. So, God, as I said, God never rejoices over judgment. So what does it mean to spare Age? I've thought a lot about this. To spare Age is, I love God, but don't mess with my vanity. I love God, but don't mess with my family, my business, my money. I love God, but don't mess with my sex life. You can hear a pin drop in this room. <laughs> I, have, I was talking to two young friends, and one of them was grieving terribly because her best friend, whom she had been in Bible study with for 20 years, had decided to have an affair and leave her husband and her children. And I said to her, she spared a egg. Well, what do you mean, Robin? But, so I, I had to explain. But that's what it is in your own life to spare a egg, to not get after what is false worship and false support for you. Get after a egg. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried all night. He cried out to the Lord all night. I, as I look out in this room, I see women who have been so grieved that you have cried out all night to the Lord. We all know what that is cry out all night to the Lord for grief for someone you love who is maybe they've walked away from the Lord or or they're facing death or something you know what it is to grieve all night and we have to remember that Samuel uh, and Saul they started out together 25 years before that and and everything was wonderful. Saul anointed him. Samuel anointed Saul as king. He brought him into his home. He gave him the best food. They had a wonderful banquet. They were very close. And this reminds me of my own story, which I hate to talk about because it is still so awful. But when my husband and I were young marrieds, we had a Bible study with some other couples. And one of the couples, we all wanted to be salt and light in the world. One of the other couples, um, he decided he was going to go to law school, and he wanted to be bring salt and life in the political realm. And he went to law school, and he came back, and we campaigned for him, and he got elected. And then everything started going south. He had a terrible temper, and it was coming out in the legislature. It was coming out in his personal relationships. And many years later, we found out that he'd been kicking his wife around. And so we helped her move out from that abuse. And then he threatened, he brought us all into court, and he sat there and did hour-long depositions with us about that. And I did not want revenge. I grieved like Samuel because I knew what God had, could have done with this person if he had the courage to not 
spare egg egg in his life. And even recently, I just Googled him, and he's still at it, even though he has been disbarred. It's grievous to me. So I understand Saul, Samuel, in this point. So picture Samuel. Now he's an old man. He has been praying and wrestling with the Lord all night. And I, I picture him finally coming to the place, just as the sun comes up, where he says, not my will, but your will be done. And he gets up, and he has to go and find Saul. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Samuel's gone to Carmel, and there he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. A monument with his name on it, to his own honor. Now, Samuel, our poor dear Samuel, has gotten from Rama and gone about 10 miles to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and now he has to go here. He's not, he's not getting any, he's not getting any less angry, is he? Yeah. <laughs> no. All right. So, he gets there, and perhaps he's remembering when Saul hid in the baggage, but time and power and success has revealed Saul's pride. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. A person boasts of what they usually don't do. Have you had a child say, oh, look, Mom, I cleaned my room, when they never usually do it. Or I cleaned the kitchen, Mom, when they never usually do it. So that's what a person boasts of. But Samuel says, what then? Is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So what is obvious to Samuel is invisible to Saul. Everybody's looking for their phones. <laughs> Somebody's phones, I bet we don't know who's. Uh, so what, so Samuel sees this hubris and Saul doesn't. So that's why we have to pray daily, Lord, show us our faults. Because if, if we don't see them, we're in big trouble. And then notice that Saul says, the Lord your God, it's not the Lord his God, it's the Lord your God. And then he says, but we totally destroyed the rest. This is an outright lie. Different phone. <laughs> Different phone, yeah. Uh, they, this is a lie because they're not totally destroyed at all. Uh, Sam, David's going to have to deal with the Amalekites in chapter 27 and again in chapter 30. And if you are familiar with the book of Esther, Haman is called the Agagite in Esther 3, 1, 10, 8, 3, and 5, 9, 24. 
Haman the Agagite. Samuel says, stop. In other words, shut up. Listen. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Aaron and Saul says, tell me. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Wicked, habitually wicked people. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight and the eyes of the Lord? The eyes of the Lord, the Lord was watching all the time. He was watching. He knows when you spare egg egg in your life. Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back egg egg their king. Now apparently Saul can twist the truth so much that he doesn't recognize that he does it in the same sentence. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So now Saul is blaming the soldiers. Saul's half-truth diversion is a cover-up for his own hubris again. Apparently now, he is also blaming God. We did it to worship your God. So it's God's fault. Samuel's reply is in Hebrew poetry, which implies that it was God-inspired. And he says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, like you, Saul, is like the sin of divination, and arrogance, like you, Saul, like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the work of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. These verses prioritize obedience after over ritual forever. I want you to notice, though, tucked in here is a little grace and mercy towards Saul. God rejected Saul as king, but not as a person. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. They made me do it. I had to do it. Now, I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the work of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hem of his robe and it tore. This is so filmic. <laughs> Saul reaching out grabbing his robe and rip. And here is the object lesson for Saul. Samuel says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. The rest of 1 Samuel 
is going to show you how Saul's kingdom will unravel like Samuel's robe. Next week, we get to hear about David. Are we excited? Yes. All right. He uh, who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul wanted God to change his mind, but Samuel says, no, this is permanent. And who's watching this? Jonathan, remember? He's the one who should have been king, but he's watching this. He's watching his father fall apart. Verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul's self-image here is more important to him than anything else. So Samuel, who still loves Saul apparently, went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. Now, ladies, if I were writing this movie, <laughs> if I were directing this movie, this is my own imagination, but this is how I would direct it. We look a close-up of Samuel's face. We see this aging man, his gray, scraggly beard covered in dust, his red-rimmed eyes from having no sleep, his robe torn, shattered by King Saul. And he goes over to Saul after he says this to Agag. He looks him in the eye, he reaches out, he gets Saul's sword and turns around. He slays Agag. The King James says he hewed Agag to death. I don't know what yours says, but it might say, oh, he put him to death. How lovely. He put him to death. So now I'm directing this movie. Samuel's covered in gore. Wasn't this perfect for Halloween? Blood and guts of Agag all over him. And I picture him going back to Saul and throwing that sword on the ground. Saul's going to have to pick it up. And he turns and he goes back to Rama. And I imagine him, my camera would follow him till he gets to the first river where he throws himself face down to wash all of that off. That's my movie. <laughs> He, uh, he put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Verse 34. He left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul could have gone to see Samuel, but he didn't. God has judged the Amalekites. He is the only one who has the right to judge. Jesus Christ on the cross took all of that judgment. He took our judgment. So we have no right to judge. 
We are to show God's mercy and grace as God showed mercy and grace in 1 Samuel 15. The verse I have chosen is from Romans 12, verses 19 and 21. I condensed them because it was too long. But Paul tells the believers in Rome, don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. So my challenge from the Lord in this chapter was to find his mercy and grace. He showed the Amalekites mercy and grace for 500 years. He showed his mercy and grace to King Saul for 25 years. To the Kenites, he showed grace for grace. Now, what did we learn from this chapter? Well, we learned that God shows mercy before he shows judgment. We learned that God's time is different from our time. We don't know how many years we have or our enemies have. It's in God's time. His time is different. It might be 500 years. It might be 25 years. We don't know. It's different. We learned that our grief for those who we love who walk away from God reflects God's grief. Samuel and God were grieving. We learned that God's desire for us is faith and obedience. Time shows our faith and time shows our obedience. And we always have to bring Jesus into the picture. So what do we learn about Jesus? How did he submit to time and grace? Well, Jesus showed us how to wait and submit for God's time when he said, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And then Jesus took our judgment on the cross. When he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That was you and me and the Amalekites and Saul. We are all there. Then what is our response to this? Mercy and forgiveness towards others is now our command to obey. So as we look at this story, who are we in this story? Do you identify with Samuel today in your grief for those that you love? Do you identify, I don't think anybody in this room would identify with Malachites, but we certainly know Amalekites, don't we? Or do we, um, maybe you identify with the Kenites, these people who show grace to other people all the time and offer to help. We are to show grace and mercy to everyone created in God's image. We are not to be like Saul, manipulating God for pride and profit. So sing with me again. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him. 